Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Mino Lion Media presents Conversations with Dr. Ian Smith. Brad Johnson has owned restaurants in the biggest cities in the country, and he's been extremely successful. One great restaurant, Post and Beam, is in L.A., and he has a great podcast called Corner Table Talk. I'm excited to talk to someone who knows a whole lot about food, the restaurant business, and entertainment. Welcome, Brad Johnson, to the show. Hey, Brad. Welcome to the conversation. Ian, thanks for having me. Um, It's a pleasure to be here. I'm excited to talk to you uh, for very selfish reasons, which is I've always wanted to own a restaurant. And uh, all of my friends have told me that's the last thing you actually want to do. (laughs) Well, you have some some trusty friends. I'll I'll put it that way. You've been in the business for over 30 years. You've owned numerous restaurants, um, many of them very celebrated. Um, Let's start right off with talking about why is the restaurant business so difficult? You know, Ian, there are a number of reasons. Number one, you know, you're dealing with variables and perishables. So, and you're dealing with uh, staff, labor. I mean, just today, the Wall Street Journal had an article I haven't had a chance to read yet, but it's about how many people have left the hospitality industry. The labor pool has shrunk dramatically. Um, I think it was Tom Colicchio had said uh, a couple of months ago when he went to rehire when uh, in dining uh, was back online that 85% of his staff had either left the industry or um, left town, left New York City. So, you know, that that's one of the, the major problems that, uh, that the industry faces these days. It's just the lack of skilled workers, the challenges with health care, wages. I mean, you name it. So in terms of why the restaurant industry is difficult, I mean, it's, it's theater. And, you know, it's, it's a nightly performance. You have to choreograph food, light service, the moon, the stars. <laughs> you know, there's there's a there are a lot of moving parts. And I, I think that it just takes a um, a little bit of luck and uh, maybe some skill and experience. But even then, it's just it's a tough formula to bottle. It looks so easy from the other side of the table. I mean, you, you say, hey, how hard is this? You walk in, you cook some food in the back, you have some tables with some, with some nice linen tablecloths and you make a lot of money. But that's not the case. <laughs> well, I'm glad we make it look easy. Um, you might not have said that on a busy Friday night with uh, backed up tickets uh, on the cooking line and me panicking and running around the room trying to look cool, um, but worried about delivering food to the table on time. You know, I mean, that's that's the art of it, right? I mean, it's, it's what you do. I mean, a, a patient comes to see you. He doesn't want or she doesn't want to have a doctor with doubts, a doctor with nervousness. What, what's the uh, the Kevin Hart commercial? I like the, the almost, right? You know, you, you want that confidence. And I think that that's part of what, as a restaurateur, um, I had a I had a very famous film director say to me one night we had opened a a twelve thousand square foot restaurant on one side nightclub on the other and um, the nightclub started too soon on the first night which meant the base was booming 
through the wall into the restaurant, disrupting the dining experience. We had about a thousand people in the building and I was literally sweating as I was walking around trying to tend to guests. And this director, Michael Bay, came up to me and said, man, you're wearing it. You're wearing it. And I said, what? He said, you're wearing it. And it, I got what he meant and that I was wearing the stress and it was not a good look. So ever since then, I've tried to be a little more cool and collected under pressure. You have a long history in restaurants. Um, father was a restaurateur, uh, very successful. Um, what was it like being the son of someone who owned a restaurant? You know, for those of us who never owned a restaurant, we always think, how cool would it be to own a restaurant? You can go in and eat whenever you want, as much as you want, and get whatever you want done without paying for it. I mean, that's what, that's how we look at restaurants from the outside about what ownership would look like. But what was it like growing up uh, the son of someone who owned a successful restaurant? Well, to coin the old phrase, there's no such thing as a free lunch. So whether you're paying for it there or you're paying for it somewhere else, you're, you're paying for it. And, you know, by the way, our, our uh, my dad, I know you're from Danbury, uh, Connecticut. My dad, both my parents actually from Hartford, Connecticut. So we have uh, Connecticut in common. Um, you know, it was you know, it was just uh, it, it was fantastic, man. I, I got to witness my father purchased his place on the Upper West Side of Manhattan. It was called The Cellar. In 1974, I was a teenager. I began in the back washing dishes. Ultimately, he let me out in the front to bus tables and I, I did every job that there was to do. But I really, you know, the, the thing that just kind of I would say captured my imagination was the crowd in the dining room. It was the blackest, beautiful era. And our clientele was almost exclusively black, although we were in a very diverse neighborhood on the Upper West Side of Manhattan for whatever reason. And, and I can discuss that. But uh, our clientele was ex exclusively black. But we had amazing people uh, that would go on to have just stellar careers. Arthur Ashe, Susan Taylor, who became the editor of Essence magazine, Bruce Llewellyn, Earl Graves, um, Earl Monroe, Walt Frazier, all the Knicks. So, you know, I got to see this colorful, you know, some folks in dashikis. I mean, I caught a little bit of the tail end of, of that wardrobe thing. But, you know, man, the, the thing that I think that and I tell people this most often, the thing that I feel most grateful for is just the, the cross section of people that I've been able to meet. Yeah, the food's been great. And, um, you know, I've had a lot of that. But the experiences with people that I've gotten a chance to uh, sit across the table from, talk to, get to know, observe, watch, listen to. Um, I listened to one of your recent podcasts, and I think it was with Yolanda Adams. You talked about the art of listening. The restaurant industry is also about the art of observing. Um, Roscoe Lee Brown, the uh, famous actor, once said to me, and it kind of set the table for me in terms of my approach to hospitality. He said, never mistake your arrival for the event. And that's kind of how I, I've approached it, man. I, you know, hospitality is about me making sure that Ian's table is good and not showing off how many fancy or, or, or you know, well-known boldface names, you know, or my friends and, and showing uh, extra attention to them while I, you know, don't pay attention to the teacher or the principal who's sitting one table over. So I think it's been a life of observation and I've had the good fortune of meeting some great people. You know, I always say that... I love great hospitality. I will pay for great hospitality and I will reward great hospitality because I used to always read about famous people like Jackie Onassis, who they would say that when she was with you, you were the only person in the room. Like she made you feel like you were it. You were the center of her attention. And the same thing when it comes to hospitality, right? You walk into a restaurant, 
or hotel and you want to feel like even though there are other diners and other guests you want to feel like management is paying particular attention to you and i think that goes a long way but i think that's also an art i mean you have to make you know 50 to 100 people feel that way it's not easy and it can be quite stressful well you know i'll tell you and i i I've lived in Los Angeles for the last 30 years, but uh, I had an interesting small experience, but it was, it just kind of reminded me of something. And you, you know, you're mentioning what you just said brought, brings this up for me, but I was, I hadn't been back to LA in a while and I was sitting in, in a new restaurant and a gentleman had come over to our table who uh, is a, is a bit of a networker. We'll call him that. Um, not to disparage him and I won't say his name, but he asked me a question in and before I answered the question, he was scanning the room and I stopped, you know, mid sentence and he came back to me eventually, never realized that I didn't answer his question. And I've had that happen to me, you know, or not just to me, but I, I've seen people that do that. And I just have always wanted to to make sure that whenever someone was speaking to me, that they had my full attention. And in the restaurant, it's, that's not necessarily the easiest thing to do, because as you're doing that, as you probably do with some of the things that, that you take on, you have your peripheral vision. You see that someone's coming in the front door and the hostess is not back at the host stand yet. You see that the gentleman's table to your right, his glass is empty and he's kind of looking for a server who hasn't seen him. But yet I want to look at you. I want to make sure that you know that you have my undivided attention for that 30 seconds or however long that might be. And, you know, I, I think that that's something that uh, has been ingrained in me, you know, just having spent that much time in the business. And, you know, when, as you say, you you reward hospitality when you go out to eat. I think that uh, those things, even though they may be subliminal, they register and you're not just there for the food, which you, of course, want to be up to standard, but you're also there for the experience, you know, and how a place or a person in that room makes you feel. And that's what usually stays with you. You know, there's um, I think about all of the great restaurants I've been to throughout the world, uh, including New York and L.A. Uh, and I, I, I ask myself, why do I like these places? Why do I, why did I like that Kobe beef place in Japan, in Tokyo? Uh, why did I like that restaurant in Beijing? You know, what was it about it? And I, I keep coming back to, I feel like when I was in those restaurants, they were taking care of me. And even though I was going, to, there were going to be thousands of other people coming after me the next couple of weeks, I felt like at that moment, my family and I were there and they were with us and they were giving us all that they got. And I've had friends who own restaurants and I've seen the other side of them after the restaurant is closed and how difficult it is, how stressful it is. I mean, do you ever feel rest? I mean, I know this is your thing. You've been doing it for a long time, but even at this stage of the game, are you stressed out by things running a restaurant, a successful restaurant? Um, I mean, you learn to manage this, the stress, you know, as, as we all do, as we've experienced some life, you know, you learn to take things in stride and you try not to let the uptimes get you too up or the downtimes get you too down. Now that's idealistic and it doesn't always work, especially under pressure, but you know, Yes, you, you, you do learn to manage that. But I mean, and it, it's an, it's kind of a natural, it's a stressful business. It really is. I mean, you're under pressure. You've got a limited period of time to make sure that you get the food to the table, that you get people serviced in the way that they want. 
um, and that they leave. You know, you, you talk about some of the memories that you have. Good friend of mine over the weekend quoted Maya Angelou to me and it. And, you know, this really resonated for me, you know, as it relates to the restaurant business. And he said um, that, that her quote is people won't necessarily remember what you say. They won't necessarily remember what you do, but they will remember how you made them feel. And without having really been conscious of that quote, you know, until I was reminded of it by my friend, um, that is really what uh, sums up, you know, my what I hope to have accomplished and, and accomplished on a nightly basis in, in the restaurants. We talk about the stress and the difficulty of restaurants and even nightclubs, but there's also a glamour side to it. I remember, you know, my early days in New York when I was young, uh, going to Club Rex. Uh, on 6th Avenue. Uh, a good friend of mine, Dave Raven, owned that club, uh, who's a restaurateur also, you probably know. Um, but I but I think about the glamour side. It was so glamorous. It was, you know, as you said, the bold-faced names, the, you know, the bottle service, uh, all the things that come with this. You have had to have experienced also the glamour side of the restaurant Flash nightclub business. How is it from the ownership side? Well, sure. And, and before I address that, I'm going to have to compete with you in terms of our closeness to, to David Raven. My son calls David Uncle David. So okay. um, <laughs> there you go. <laughs> but I know you play golf with Michael Strahan and I know they're, they're good friends. But yeah, David and I, uh, we go way back. Um, you know, in speaking of Rex, I mean, it, that was a that was a phenomenal, phenomenal nightclub. He and I have kind of mirrored one another, East Coast, West Coast. I had just moved to Los Angeles uh, uh, when they opened Rex and I opened up a nightclub called Roxbury, which became uh, better known and immortalized in the film Night at the Roxbury. You know, you mentioned Jackie Onassis early on, and I can tell you a funny, quick, funny story. So um, when I was working with my dad in New York, we were struggling to try to build up our weekday business, the Monday through Thursday, Friday and Saturday. You know, our, our folks go out and they're jamming and they're partying, but sometimes Monday and Tuesday can leave a little bit. All right. So I was trying to find a way to build it up. And of course, it was pre-social media. There was no Internet. So, you know, we were we were stuck with the old fashioned ways of how to promote. So uh, I came up with this idea to just blanket our neighborhood. We were on 95th Street and Columbus Avenue on the Upper West Side to blanket the neighborhood with flyers and, you know, just try to promote, give, give something away. I don't remember what it was. I think we, we discounted an, an appetizer or something like that. And so a couple of nights later, I come in the restaurant uh, about five o'clock for the start of service. And I see it's a small dining room, but I could see the top of someone's head over in one of the booths. And I could see he's reading to, to man. I can see that he's reading the New York Times. So I go over and uh, it's a white guy. And I'm like, wow, OK, you know, we start to get, you know, some white folks in here. This is interesting. Let me, you know, introduce myself. So I go over to introduce myself and it was JFK Jr. Wow. And um, I said, hey, man, you know, wow, nice to see you in here. You know, how'd you find out about us? He said, I got a flyer. So <laughs> it, it works. He lived in a brownstone around the corner as it or a couple of blocks away, as it turned out. And uh, he and I became friends, man, through the years and uh, used to play football in Central Park, uh, gave me some uh, Nick seats a, a few times. So to your question, I mean, yeah, the um, the glamour part of it is is enticing, attractive, fun. Um, some of my friends come from the entertainment industry and, and I'm happy that I've been able to maintain friendships with them. But as you know, man, you know, friendship doesn't come in a bold face name. 
you know, again, back to that, not to overuse the quote, but it's how a person makes you feel. You know, do they listen to you? Are they there when you, when, you know, is that the, is that person the person you're going to be able to call when you need that someone to talk to? So that's how I define friendships and to pick up where I began. David Raven is, is one of those people for me, just a fantastic human being. Well, you just, you very casually dropped in the Roxbury, which is, you know, a legendary uh, place. I mean, it, at one point, you know, was the hottest joint in L.A. There's no doubt about it. Uh, I went to the Roxbury, by the way. I won't say if I was legally of age to get into the Roxbury, but, but I got into the Roxbury. I'll talk about how it was running a place like that. Well, you know, the um, the first year that we opened, I had just moved to Los Angeles from New York in 1989, and uh, I had become friends with Norm Nixon and Debbie Allen. Uh, I, I actually played against Norm in college. Norm was at Duquesne. I went to UMass. We played basketball against one another. He doesn't remember me, but I certainly remember him from, <laughs> from his college days. Um, and then we got reacquainted in New York. I had restaurants in New York and Norm and Debbie when Debbie was doing Sweet Charity on Broadway. I had opened a place called Memphis with a guy named Al Corley and Carly Simon. And so that was where, um, you know, I, I valued and understood uh, what celebrity could offer in terms of uh, advanced marketing. <laughs> so um, I'd moved to L.A. and Norm had said, man, if you, you know, if you ever come out, because we talked about the possibility of me moving out, I just love the weather and I love the idea of Southern California. He said, man, I'll, you know, I'll, I'll help you if you want to do something. So I connected, reconnected with Norm and a couple of other guys and we opened up Roxbury in what was formally going way back to the 40s, a place called the Players Club owned by a director by the name of Preston Sturgis. And it sits right in front of the famous Chateau Mermont. And back in the day, there was a tunnel that used to take celebrities and their, you know, mistresses or, or you know, lovers through the tunnel directly to the Chateau Mermont. Because I guess even back then there was the danger of paparazzi. Mm -hmm. So the year that Roxbury opened in 89, the Wall Street Journal. Um, and I remember being especially proud of this moment because Bruce Llewellyn, uh, the business executive, was was in, at Roxbury on New Year's Eve. The Wall Street Journal had picked Roxbury as the hottest place in the country to be for New Year's Eve. And, um, you know, when the clock struck 12, I went up on the roof with a glass of champagne and sat up there and I actually shed a tear. You know, I, I felt very grateful for having gotten to that moment. I'd had some struggles in New York and personal and, and, and business and, you know, how you fall down, but you learn to get back up in that moment where you feel like you've gotten back up on your feet and can bring a little emotion. So that was that was how I rang in New Year's Eve on on 1989. I looked at Roxbury almost I did not almost to me. Roxbury was a modern day Studio 54 in a way. It was the place to be seen. It was hard to get in. It was full of energy. It was just it. I just, I don't know how to say it. It was it. Like when you mentioned LA and going out, you had to say, well, are you going to try to get into the Roxbury? How does it feel to have been someone who orchestrated, was behind something that was, you know, so sizzling white hot like that? And, and still to this day, for those of us of age, it has a lasting imprint in our memories. Well, thank you, man, for that. Um, you know, I, you saying that I, I go back to one night standing on the, the ledge in the, in the front of the club. It was a tri-level club and there was a stairway um, that we could stand. And, 
you know, you, you know, in the, um, you know, you get around in, in Los Angeles by car. So, you know, you can, you can often judge, you know, how hot a place is by what cars are lined up in their driveway. And I just remember standing there with one of my business partners and seeing this, the line that was snaked the, the car to park in the valet. There must have been three or 400 people at the front door trying to get in. The place was already packed. And again, having gone through, you know, some successes and some failures prior to that, I said to my partner, I said, man, cherish this moment because these moments are fleeting, you know, and I knew enough then to know that. Um, but, you know, it, it, I mean, in reflection, it's great. I mean, I get to recall a lot of stories and a lot of, you know, I remember plucking um, John Singleton. Um, you know, one of my missions was that, you know, a lot of times the nightclubs that were exclusive with the ropes, you know, certainly I learned some things from Keith McNally and Nels in New York. Um, but uh, what I had found in L.A., surprisingly, the, the, the nightclub industry was a little bit segregated. So I would go down to the front door. Inevitably, I'd see, you know, a few too many black faces on the other side of the rope. So I would reach out and grab people like Lawrence Fishburne before he was very well known and, and some others. But one of the young people, probably your age, he was probably all 16 at the time or 17, maybe maybe a little bit old, was John Singleton. And I and I walked John into the club and he was very grateful. He was a little awkward and he was a student at USC film school. And we became friends, man, right up until... A couple of weeks before before his untimely passing, we had been at Netflix uh, pitching uh, pitching an idea there, and unfortunately, John, you know, passed away way too soon. But just tons and tons of memories like that, man. That's what that's what I really value, and the people that come up to me and say, "Man, I met my wife," or "Man, I had my anniversary," or, "Man, we," you know, those those are the moments that I really love. I know that it was frequented uh, by many, many, many people, but if you can think back of who was there who you saw who you were so excited maybe some some person you always wanted to see in your life or meet what what person really kind of got your adrenaline going seeing them inside there were there were a couple um one was prince you know of all of the people that came in and i would you know go up to most of them and introduce myself and and feel you know quite comfortable doing that I didn't introduce myself to Prince, man. He was in there one night. The first night he came in, we had a VIP room that overlooked Sunset Boulevard, and it was all windows and all booths. And Prince was sitting on the back of his booth, sitting up above the seat on the back of his booth, sucking a lollipop. No one else was there uh, in, at his table. And I must have thought about it in for, you know, five minutes, 10, should I go over? And I could not get, I don't know why. I mean, it just, it was just intimidating. He's a little bitty guy, but I'm just intimidated by his aura. The other person who I got to know, man, who, you know, just was, I couldn't believe my luck was Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. Norm introduced me to him and Kareem and I, you know, developed a, a relationship and uh, I just, you know, man, growing up, looking at Lou Alcindor become Kareem, UCLA become the late, you know, I was just enthralled by Kareem. And uh, so, yeah, th those two for me would uh, would certainly stand out. Isn't it amazing as we get older and we enter a different season of our life that we look back at the other seasons um, and we don't look back at them regretfully because you know, you can't stay in one season. I don't believe life is meant to stay in one season. But when I look back at my seasons in New York and then in L.A., I'm so grateful that I did it the way I did it. Because when I was doing it, 
like you said earlier, I knew it was fleeting. I knew it wasn't forever. So I did it as best as I could and to the max as best as I could because I knew at some point I would be out of that season and I wanted to be able to look back and say how much I enjoyed it. And I have no regrets because I did it the way, the best way I could do it. Do you feel the same way? You know, I'd like to say that I have no regrets, you know, more like I did it my way. Regrets, I have a few, you know, (laughs) but, you know, I was just having, I know you're a dad. I was just having this conversation with my son in LA over the weekend. Um, He's a musician. And, you know, last year was, was devastating for musicians as tours just dried up and that's their primary source of income. And I just, you know, I, I referred to it, you know, my, my friends and I call this part of our lives the fourth quarter. You know, we're all, you know, about the same age. And, you know, we know that there's more in our rear view than there is in our windshield. Um, and I tell my son, I say, you know, I said, look, man, you know, this is just right now. You know, don't project what next year is going to be like. Don't ruminate on what last year was, was like. You have right now and everything you do right now will determine what happens next. Don't wallow in regret. Don't stay in what hasn't happened, what didn't happen. So, you know, I think that with with some wisdom in and, and listening is, you know, you've talked about listening to the older folks, man. You know, there's so much to be gained by by listening and, and learning from people who have already traveled. And, you know, as again, as as fathers, we know that we're not always that the best messenger for our children. They'll hear it better from somebody else. And then and it's something oh. from, some, from somebody else than they hear. From, but as long as they get the message, I don't care. You know, I, I can't believe you're saying this. My my recent revelation is that. Most family members, particularly kids, do not want to receive a message from a relative. And when they do receive it, they take it with a sense of bitterness or a grain of salt. But if they hear the same message from someone down the street, then they embrace the message. And so my new thing is that I take my ego out of the equation. It's even though it would be nice from a sentimental standpoint to say that I was able to impart upon my kids these wisdoms you know these kinds of things and that they embraced it and it was a thing we did together even though that would be nice to say you have to remove your ego out of it and say what's the most important thing and the most important thing is that they get the message that's what the most important thing is if they get the message whether it's from me or from someone else i want them to get the message and that's been a game changer for me as a parent um, to be able to, to take away, it's taken away a lot of stress, a lot of pressure and just say, listen, I tried, <laughs> it didn't work, but I can't give up because I'm pissed off because they won't listen to me. Instead, I'm now willing to find outside resources, right? Because I got to make sure they get that message. I think, you know, parenting, someone said, it's the most difficult job that you love. <laughs> um, <laughs> you know, it's just hard. You know, I had I had that exact moment that you just described this past weekend. My dear friend, Adam Katz, uh, who's a a big baseball agent and a really bright guy, um, you know, spends his uh, he does most of his work is negotiating contracts for baseball players. But he's also a therapist. You know, a lot of athletes have issues and get a car. My wife and I are divorced. I mean, you name it, everything under the sun. And my son and I were spending some concentrated time together because there were some things I was trying to talk through with him. And we went out to brunch 
And he had spent about a half an hour with Adam prior to our going out to brunch, yet he had spent a couple of days intensively with me. So we're sitting at brunch and he says, you know, Adam just said to me something that you haven't said and gave him a piece of advice and a little bit of direction. And he was like, it was exactly what I needed to hear. And I had to do just what you described. And I swallowed, you know, and I said, you know what? This is not about me. This is not about my ego. Who's delivering? As long as he got it. That was what I cared most about. But for a moment, I was like, (laughs) what are you talking about, man? I've been 48 hours on you. So that's right. Hey, let me ask you, when you see, given your expertise, Brad, when you see shows like Gordon Ramsay, Restaurant Impossible, what do you think about that kind of those reality restaurant shows in general? You know, I, I have a really hard time watching those shows because it's it feels like work. You know, it puts me in that stressed state. And, um, you know, when I come home, it's not the thing that I want to I don't want to jump right back into that that world that I left. You know, I was talking with a chef last week, a guy named Preston Clark, whose father was legendary Patrick Clark, one of the uh, most prominent African-American chefs there ever was. I mean, on, you know, on the level of Alice Waters and in terms of his impact, French train. And Preston is the chef at Lure Fish Bar in New York. Brilliant cat, man. Brilliant, brilliant cat. Probably in his 40s. I had never heard of him. And I said to him, I said, man, I've been in the business, you know, forever. And I try to keep track of who's who. And, you know, his publicist, who I, it was a friend of mine who introduced me to him. And I said, man, I never heard of you. And how are you, how are you not uh, like on every chef show and like your name alone? And he, you know, he wanted to do the work. So this is a, maybe a different answer or not quite the answer to the question that you asked, but. I don't know. For me, having spent my whole career actually pulling out the chairs, doing the work, I just have an immense amount of respect for people who have been in the industry. It's fine to write books. And I I know you've written a bunch of them. It's fine to do TV. It's fine to be on those shows. But there is also this this, you know, there are there's some that have just done the work. And I really admired that Preston had had not traded on his family name and decided he was really going to be good first. That was the most important thing for me. So I don't know. Some of the shows, to me, they elevate people before maybe they're ready. They haven't really earned their stripes in the industry. Some have. You can look at it in any number of ways, but I, I usually refrain from watching cooking shows. <laughs> Do you cook or you or you, you just run the I get by. You get by. Okay. I get by. I'm okay. a restaurateur, I, but yeah. I, I, can, I can do a few things, but uh, you wouldn't want to open a restaurant with me as your chef. Okay. What I do, well, believe it or not, what's on my, one thing on my bucket list, you're not going to believe this though, is I've always dreamed of owning a rib joint. <laughs> I just want to own a barbecue joint. I want a small joint with very few items, and that's all we do. That's all we do. You know, I went to, when I was in Milan many years ago, um, I went to a very famous sandwich shop outside of Il Duomo, big church. And they only did four or five sandwiches and people were lining up and eating in the streets. I mean, the place was no bigger than a kitchen, literally, like you couldn't, there was no seating. And the energy of people coming from all walks of life, by the way, business guys coming after work, sanitation guys, tourists, who are coming to get these sandwiches on this 
beautiful, fresh baked bread. You could smell, you know, the aroma wafting out of the ovens outside. And we're all standing outside eating these sandwiches. Well, I, I've always wanted to own a rib joint and I always wanted to own a small rib joint where the food is just so good. It's not a ton of items, but it's authentic and delicious. And I just can't get it out of my head. I just can't stop wanting to own it. Like I, even though everyone says to me, and it's not about making money. I, I don't want to make money from it. I'd like to break even. I just want to own this rib joint. <laughs> And, and I can't just stop thinking about it. <laughs> you know, I went uh, over Memorial Day. My wife and I uh, were finishing a house in Miami. But in the in the interim, we're, we're staying over in Naples on the west side of Florida, which I haven't I haven't spent much time over here. Um, and so for Memorial Day, I really wanted some ribs uh, and I wanted like I didn't want to waste my meat, you know, because I don't eat, I don't eat red meat very often. So I, I knew that it had to be good. Now, if I was in L.A., I would know exactly where to go. Woody's or any number of places. But in, here I was lost. So I start Googling and I found this spot, man, in Fort Myers. And it was just a, a, a smoker. An old brother had a smoker on the side of the road and a little like kind of rundown looking storefront. And all he sold was ribs. There was no side. There were no sides. It was ribs and and Wonder Bread. <laughs> and man, I have to tell you, Ian, they were the best ribs I think I have ever had. The sauce was ridiculous. The meat was tender. Um, so you know, to your to your point, I mean, look, if you if you are these days specializing in something and doing the best version of that one thing, reduces your labor, reduces your overhead, streams streamlines your business model. And I think that it's I wouldn't talk you out of it, but I would ask you to call me and let me help you find a location and work I was through gonna it. Say, I'm going to call you and, and, and do that. Um, yeah. OK, Brad, listen, um, I'd like to end my conversations with seven random questions yeah. and um, simple answers. It's about your answer. My question, you answer and we move on. But um, you can answer as brief as you want to. OK. Yeah. OK, here we go. <clears throat> what does success look like to you? Uh, success to me, Ian, is having the respect of your peers, the love of your family, the time and money um, and taste to do what you love. A good friend of mine says, do what you have to do so you can do what you want to do. Hmm. And I, I define it as that. What do you own that's really expensive, but you don't feel guilty about? Oh, what do I own that's really expensive? I don't feel guilty about. Um, I would say a house in the islands that uh, it, it's not you wouldn't you wouldn't. I mean, relatively speaking, expensive to me is not expensive to someone else. But I don't feel bad about that at all. Awesome. Which island? Uh, the Dominican Republic. Very nice. If you were not working as a restaurateur, what would be your dream job? I think I would like to be a coach. I, I think I'd like to coach high school kids. Who would you like to have a long dinner with who you've not met yet and why? Barack Obama, because I think we'd be friends. <laughs> he has a house in Martha's Vineyard where I've spent a lot of time and I could tell him all about those stories up there and take him to get probably the best, uh, the best lobster roll he's ever had. 
But uh, I just really, I, I just love that man. You know, I listened to his uh, Bruce Springsteen, uh, the podcast that he did on Spotify with Bruce Springsteen, and this is musical taste, his political views, his view of the world, his intellect. Um, I, w- I would love to have a little chat with Barack. What really makes you angry? Uh, people that are rude to service people and um, people that, uh, that I, I, you know, anger. I don't I don't necessarily get anger, but that definitely starts my blood boiling. I, you know, I've seen some very wealthy people, um, you know, treat service personnel not so well. And uh, there, there's no bigger turn off for me than that. Which restaurant other than your own have you eaten at? that you think is one of the greatest restaurants on earth? Well, in terms of the experience, it's no longer there. I would have to say Hal's on Abbott Kinney in Venice. For me, just epitomized what I look for in a dining experience. It had the right proportion of bar to restaurant. The food was approachable. It, it was, you know, you could find whatever you were looking to eat. And Hal himself was the epitome of what I define to be a, a great host. He always had a little Miles Davis playing. The art was spectacular. The room was dynamic. And Hal was there almost every time I went. Another restaurant would be along the same lines would be Jezebel in New York, which is also no longer there. Alberta Wright was a dear friend of mine. But what she did with four walls in it. In that room and what she threw together in terms of culture and art and food and sense of smell and taste was just unparalleled and it changed the game for me. It made me look at restaurants differently. When someone comes across an article written about you 100 years from now, what do you want that article to say about you? He's still here. <laughs> they found the key. E, Dr. Ian Smith discovered the, the pill for longevity. He's still here. He was one of the first to take it. I, I you know, man, I, he was kind. He treated people well. He loved his family. His friends loved him. Uh, that, that would be it for me, man. Uh, I'd be happy if those things were, were printed in, my, uh, in the obituary at my service. Well said. Brad Johnson, thank you for joining the conversation today. Ian Smith, my pleasure. Thank you, sir. Conversations with Dr. Ian Smith is hosted by Dr. Ian Smith, associate producer Ariel Mancibo, executive producers Ian Smith and Ken Johnson. Find the Conversations with Dr. Ian Smith podcast on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, iHeartRadio, Amazon Music, Odyssey, or wherever you get your podcast, or on IG at Dr. Ian Smith. Conversations with Dr. Ian Smith is a mean old line media production. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.